0: This is a podcast from BBC Studios, a commercial
1: subsidiary of the BBC.
2: People think about poaching of sort of elephants, you know, in these big species on land, but so much of what happens at sea we just can't see, and that's something that really fought it home about how little we know about what goes on out there. The crew knew the things they didn't want us to see, so there were times where I saw you know, like a big turtle caught up in the nets so that they were trying to just throw it off the back of the boat before we could see it.
3: Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. This week, we're on a rescue mission.
2: It's very sad to see... These sharks being killed on board a boat, but it's the bigger picture that's more terrifying. These are top predators in the ocean, and if you remove those, then whole marine systems can break down.
3: When it comes to the story of our relationship with the natural world, more often than not, we're the bad guys. But not always. In this episode, we're looking at some of the times that we're the good guys, at people who make it their life's work to undo some of the hurt we've caused our fragile planet and be part of its recovery. And we'll be looking at some of the ways the natural world comes to our rescue too. We begin today in the waters off the west coast of Africa, on a 52-metre ex-whaling vessel called the Bob Barker. It belongs to the conservation charity Sea Shepherd. And assistant producer Emily Frank is on board with a camera crew to film them hunting down illegal poachers and bringing them to justice.
2: So I actually had just started my job on A Perfect Planet as maternity leave cover couple of weeks in, they said, you know, are you OK to go on this shoot? So I obviously said yes. Um, you have to say yes when you start a job. But it was certainly a different kind of shoot to ones I've been on previously. Usually we have the fortune to go out and film some of the most amazing spectacles in nature and, you know, beautiful scenery, incredible species. Essentially, this was going out to film a lot of destruction of nature.
3: Emily is an assistant producer on A Perfect Planet, the BBC Natural History series that we've been dipping in and out of on this series of the podcast. She spent three weeks out at sea.
2: I definitely didn't imagine that my first shoot would be trying to chase down illegal fishing vessels. That's not quite what I imagined, but um, it was just so interesting. So Sea Shepherd are a marine conservation charity. They're quite well known for some of their past campaigns against whaling, chasing down whaling boats off Antarctica. And This particular campaign, they are working with governments of West Africa, to fight illegal fishing in their waters and unregulated fishing. What Sea Shepherd can provide is the vessel and also the staff who know how to run that vessel, but they obviously don't have the rights to go and board fishing vessels and arrest people, so they work very closely with the Gabonese government and Gabonese fisheries officers to get out on the water and then sort of let the Gabonese enforcement do their job. Illegal fishing is really complicated and actually incredibly in that area off the west coast of Africa, 40% of the fish that are caught are caught illegally. It can be, you know, boats fishing without a license. It could be boats fishing in an area they're not supposed to, like in a marine protected area. It could be boats taking a species of fish they're not licensed to take, taking too much fish. Some boats could be, you know, smuggling contraband. Some people, people smuggle out there. So there's all sorts of different things that could be happening out there. You have to be ready 24 hours a day because you never know when you're going to have to make a boarding. As soon as they see something on the maps or on the radar, they'll all sort of gather and say, do we want to sort of keep following this boat? And what's the plan? And what time do we think we might be able to board it? Once they've dropped their nets, that boat can't move anywhere. So that's a good time. From that point onwards, everyone's sort of ready to go. But it might not be for another six hours or something, or it might be in 20 minutes that it's suddenly boarding time. At night time, you have to go to bed in your clothes. We had a grab bag of the camera kit we needed, the spare batteries, some water sort of stashed away. And it doesn't really make for a good night's sleep because you're lying in bed in this little cabin thinking, I know the alarm's going to go off as soon as I close my eyes. It is one of those strange jobs, I guess, a bit like being a lifeguard or something, where you have nothing to do, but then you know that suddenly you're going to have to be switched on and ready to go in a moment's notice you are below deck a lot of the time. So for the first couple of days, I was a bit seasick. We all shared a bunk room together with all of our kit, which was fine. Um, But the water filter on the boat broke actually after a few days. The whole crew was only allowed a shower once every two or three days. So uh, there was certainly some kind of A nice fishy smells around from all of our clothes from boarding, but uh, no, we rubbed along very well in our little cabin. The majority of the crew were volunteers from all over the world, and it was just amazing to hear everyone's story about why they wanted to be on board doing that. You know, there were veterans out there who had done it for years, but there were also people that had never worked on a boat before and they were thrown into this quite high-pressure situation. They were such a diverse bunch. There were sort of engineers, you know, men in their 60s who had retired and they just wanted to give something back to the planet, I guess. Then there were sort of younger volunteers who hadn't started a full-time job yet. And then we were working with six Gabonese marines and three fisheries officers. There was a really nice sort of vibe in the mess. Everyone sort of rubbed along really well, which was really nice. And I think people really came out of their shells after a few days on board. One of the Marines, Nida, he was sort of very cheeky and had a great sense of humour because he sort of acted as the translator between the crew that didn't speak French and those that did. He had quite a lot of fun with us all. Um, evening Bananagrams games doesn't sound very wild, but wouldn't like to repeat some of the words that appeared on the Bananagrams board. Um, There's definitely a lot of interlanguage cheating going on. <laughs> Suddenly the alarm goes off, everyone assembles on the deck, the two small boats get lowered into the water and you just start racing out across the ocean and you're just trying to hold on to all of the camera kit, which is having sea spray on it. So you're like, oh God, <laughs> the camera's going to be working when we get over there, we've got some plastic on them but it's very bumpy. And then suddenly you see this huge boat looming on the horizon and you have no idea what kind of vessel you're about to board, if they're going to want you on their boat, if they're going to be antagonistic, and what you're going to find. When you reach the vessel, they make a call to that boat to say, we are going to board your boat. We're the Gabonese Marines and Fisheries Enforcement. They throw a ladder over the side of the boat. And sometimes the water's quite choppy, so you're below this sort of huge, heaving metal boat and your little ribs going up and down. And then when the right moment comes, when your ribs sort of rising up against the side of this other vessel, they say, go, and you jump onto the rope ladder. Try not to make a complete idiot of yourself or get squashed between two boats and try and get up there as fast as you can and onto the boat safely. And then suddenly you're on deck. And once we were on board, it was sort of straight into it. The fisheries crew then comes up onto the boat and starts to inspect it. The Marines have to act as if every boat could be potentially dangerous, so they can't let their guard down. You might then be on that boat for three hours as they sort of really carefully check through everything, so it then sort of calms down a bit. I think the big European ships, they sort of knew the drill and they sort of just carry on doing what they were doing. Some of the other ships we boarded, some of the Chinese trawler vessels, a lot of the crew on that boat might have not known what was going on you suddenly have all of these enforcement officers boarding your boats with big guns. So I guess it's quite a scary moment for some of them. I think one of the other really quite shocking things to see was the conditions that those crew were working in, because on some of those boats, the crew were sort of sleeping on pieces of cardboard in the hold of the ship with cockroaches everywhere. Essentially, it's often not the crews of the boat that are doing anything wrong. A lot of the time, it's sort of the bigger players that are acting illegally and these people are just doing their jobs in really horrific conditions on these boats. You can't view those fisheries workers as criminals, necessarily. Whilst we were out with Sea Shepherd, we were not on board any boats that uh, arrests were made on, although there was one just about a week after we left, which is always how it goes.
3: Emily might not have seen any illegal activity out at sea, or witnessed any arrests, but she did see something else, something completely legal which was perhaps just as shocking.
2: That very first boat we boarded, we straight away just saw lots of sharks coming up as bycatch, which is sadly the norm, because they'd just get scooped up in amongst all of the tuna and then thrown back overboard again. The problem is, is that... Usually they're so badly injured by the time that happens because the way they're handled on deck is not good either. They're sort of lifted up by their tails or they're sort of grabbed by their gills or they're left on deck for some time. And sadly, throwing them back in the water too injured to survive is not illegal, like, you can't be charged for that. That is a byproduct of the way that we fish on these huge, great factory ships. We saw sort of huge turtles, we saw big rays, they all get pulled in and they're obviously completely exhausted and that's not illegal, that's just what happens in industrial fishing to get food on our plate, sadly. It's sort of such a weird thing to see these like big majestic animals, especially the big rays and the sharks and obviously their skin when they're on deck, especially the blue sharks, it's so iridescent and it just is so beautiful but it's also really sad because there's sort of blood all over them and they're being hauled back off the boat. I did ask the Sea Shepherd captain, Peter Hammerstead how do you measure whether this is even working? And he said um, in the last, I think it's about three and a half years, they've arrested 50 boats across Africa and boarded obviously hundreds more than that. A couple of years ago they arrested a big vessel that was illegally poaching sharks for um, shark oil, which is used in cosmetics and some vaccines. And by arresting that one vessel, they effectively likely save the lives of 250,000 sharks that that vessel would have gone on to take. Sometimes it seems like a drop in the ocean, but just taking one of these illegal vessels off the water can have a huge impact. Sea Shepherd have been doing this since 2016, and when they first got out there, they noticed that boats were actually setting their nets around whales, because they knew that where there were whales, there was probably big schools of fish. And now that is illegal as a result of the fisheries officers reporting that. I guess standing on the deck of those big fishing boats is very easy to feel so disheartened about what we're doing as a species to the rest of the planet and just think, God, this is such an enormous problem. How can anyone fix it? And then you sit over dinner and you talk to one of the Marines or you talk to one of the fisheries officers or you talk to a Sea Shepherd crew member and you just hear their passion for it. And just to know that there are people out there all over the world fighting for this and doing a great job, even though it can sometimes feel like a drop in the ocean, it is having an impact. That's the sort of positivity you need to carry on. Because otherwise, it would be easy just to bury your head in the sand and say this problem's too big.
3: You can see more from Emily and the whole crew of the Sea Shepherd in A Perfect Planet from the BBC and you can find out how the marine protected areas off Gabon are really having an impact. As is so often the case, all nature really needs is for us to leave it alone and things can start slowly to return to their former glory. A perfect planet is out now in the UK and check the BBC Earth website for when you can see it with.
0: Well. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans.
3: You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where we're going through tough times, but finding that rescue is on the horizon. Sometimes our saviours come in shapes and sizes that we weren't quite expecting.
0: People ask, how come you called a penguin? And she just actually looked like a little penguin. She was so fluffy and she had these huge feet and she'd just stare at you.
3: For this story, you're going to get to know the Bloom family.
0: Hi, I'm Cameron
3: Bloom.
1: Hi, my name is Sam Bloom, and I live with Cam in the northern beaches in
3: Sydney. Australia. Cameron and Sam have three boys, Reuben, Noah and Oliver. And this story starts with a family holiday, eight years ago. Cam and I have
1: always loved travelling, so when our three kids were old enough, we actually wanted to take them to Ethiopia. That was our initial plan, and we are going to stop off in Cairo. But unfortunately, it was just a bit dangerous in Cairo at the time. So we went to Thailand. The food's lovely, the people are lovely, it's safe. So we were four days into our holiday. We just flew flew into um, Phuket. And we stayed at this really nice hotel. And then um, one of the kids spotted like a stairway up to this kind of observation deck. So we all walked up and I lent on a railing. And it had dry rot, but I didn't realize and I fell about six metres and broke my back.
0: The big thing for me was the sound of the railing hitting the ground and it was just incredible metal striking, stone clanging. And then when I raced to the edge, I saw Sam lying all that distance down below and I just dropped my um, juice that I was drinking and raced down. And the worst part for me was seeing, seeing the blood ooze from the back of Sam's head. And um, it was just like spilling out, just like the movies, this giant pool of blood getting bigger and bigger. And I thought, you know, Sam most definitely must have sustained an incredible head injury. The boys were right beside me, you know. Noah was like crying and, you know, Reuben asked if Mummy's gonna die and she was struggling to breathe and like gurgling. It was just minutes before this, we were taking photos on the rooftop and drinking a, a fruit juice and planning to go cycling. And, and just in that instant, our lives changed.
1: I mean, I was like really active before my accident, like soccer and running and mountain biking. And so for me, a spinal cord injury was like my worst nightmare. I was devastated, you know, devastated that everything that I loved doing was sort of taken away from me. I was in hospital for seven months so when I came home, I think that was when the reality really hit. And I was like, oh, wow, this is my new life. And to be honest, I really, I didn't like it at all. I was just angry, angry and frustrated and, and jealous, which I hate. Like, I would be jealous because friends would come up, because we live near the beach, and they'd be like, oh, I've just been down the beach, or oh, I'm just going for a run. And I didn't want to hear any of that, because then it just made it even worse. I kind of pushed a lot of people away. I wasn't
0: in a good headspace. You know, the boys would not realise it, but just by leaving some clothes on the floor or shoes, as all kids do, she couldn't then go into the boys' bedroom because she would run into them, you know, with a wheelchair. And it was just getting worse and worse. After about three months, you know, Sam was kind of like suicidal and just crying all the time. And I was kind of beside myself. I didn't know what to do. and and then penguin arrived.
1: Our son Noah and I went to my mom's house, which is the next beach up. She's got like these big Norfolk pine trees and every year the magpies make a nest there and they're so, um, so exposed. My mom's um, unfortunately found a few little baby magpies that have fallen out of the nest and blown into my mom's swimming pool. And I wasn't driving at the time, so mum had to drive us home and that's when Noah, just spotted a little baby magpie that had been blown out of her nest. No, I just found it in the grass. So obviously she'd fallen like 20 metres or something crazy. She was super fluffy and grey, like all her chest feathers were grey. She was about the size of a clenched fist. She had massive feet. I remember her feet, like it was so, so out of proportion for her body. And she had like a tiny little black beak.
3: Penguin is an Australian magpie. If you're listening in Europe, Asia or North America, you might know the magpie as a black and white member of the crow family, with iridescent blue and green tail feathers. If you're listening in Australia, however, you'll have an entirely different bird in mind. Although they share a name and a black and white dress code, they're not at all related. Aussie magpies have a reputation for swooping, dive-bombing unsuspecting people if they get too close during nesting season. But they're also smart, with beautiful songs and an instinct for mischief.
1: She was so young and so vulnerable so we thought if we'd left her there she would have died, you know, got bitten by a cat or a dog or I don't know where anything, even a kookaburra may have taken her. We picked her up and put her in the car and brought her home and started looking after her.
0: Within Maybe, the, like, two hours, she was sort of feeding from us because magpies eat a lot of insects and there's little fragments of bone that they would, you know, normally um, swallow. We found the right sort of mix of food. You know, it was kangaroo mince, crushed up with <laughs> a boiled egg and we you include the eggshells. So, yeah, we um, mixed that up with uh, some insect powder, a little bit of cheese and also a little bit of parsley. <laughs>
1: I was here all the time, stuck at home. And so was Penguin, so we spent hours, hours and hours and hours together, just hanging out. She would either be on on my lap or on my shoulder. And so I would just like wheel around with her. At the time, um, I felt like a pretty terrible mum. You know, I wasn't the same mum I was when I left for Thailand. So yeah, I didn't have much confidence. I didn't think I could look after the boys. So I think when Penguin did come, I realised I could look after something, and she needed me. When she was a bit bigger, when she slept outside, she'd make this noise like the dog at the back door, and then Cam would get up and let her in, and then she'd come down the hallway and usually jump up into our bed and just, like, and fall asleep. It was super cute. Every morning on her back, she would just, like, crash out. And she'd spend a lot of time with, like, the kids, just playing games, like catch, They'd be crawling under the dining room table, through all the chairs, and she'd be running around not letting them catch her. Mm. That was really cool. (whistles) Penguin came at like the perfect time, just to sort of lift the whole mood of our house. She's put a smile on my face and made us laugh actually, with her quirky behaviour and all her antics.
0: As was our plan in the very beginning, we just wanted to rehabilitate her and keep her as a wild bird so she could integrate back into the wild and over time she spent more and more time away from the house and then just when you least expect it the window would be open and she'd just come flying in you know and give us a surprise because she'd land straight on your head.
3: As the family watched this once frail fledgling becoming stronger every day a similar transformation began to take place in Sam. With a renewed sense of purpose in life, she took up a new sport, competitive para kayaking. And she was good. She made it to the Australian national team. Inspired by the determination and strength of a certain black and white bird, she eventually won two Australian titles. Two years after Penguin first came into their lives, Sam was invited to take part in the World Championships in Italy. She left first. Two weeks later, the rest of the family were due to follow.
0: And so the boys and I, we were getting ready to leave the next morning for Italy to join Sam. And I got a call from my friend who was down the road and they were having a big party. It was like nine o'clock at night. And he goes, man, penguins down here. And she was like bouncing off everyone's heads and they thought it was hysterical. And and so I went down and uh, sort of pick her up. And um, he said, oh, you just missed her. She just left. And so we came home, went to bed and... Um, That was the night that she flew away. It was pretty incredible that she came at at a really important time for us as a family and then in a weird way, you know, Sam had just flown to Italy to be on the Australian team and compete in the world championships. Sam often says, you know, she came at the perfect time and left at the perfect time. For two years that Penguin was with us, so it was a, a gift from nature.
1: Yeah, hopefully one day she might come back. That'd be really cool. She'd come back with her
3: babies. (laughs) A huge thank you to Noah Bloom, the one who originally found Penguin in the grass, who composed all the music in this piece for us. Cameron wrote a book about their time with Penguin, and that book's now also been made into a movie, both called Penguin Bloom. And like all the big celebrities, Penguin's also got an Instagram full of gorgeous pictures of her and the rest of the Bloom brood. For our final story, we're staying in Australia. This one starts in Goongoura in Victoria. Around seven miles south of the small town, in among mile after mile of thick woods, there's a rescue centre for one of Australia's most beloved marsupials.
4: Hey, buddy. That was Conrad just having a little scratch. Wombats are the itchiest creatures I've ever met. The... Tell-tale sign that a wombat is unwell is if it is not itchy. It's always a good test for rescuing or assessing is if they're itchy. They're a good, they're happy wombat. A member of public that I was speaking to described wombats as chubby footstools, and I was just like, yes, that's exactly what they are. They're just a round, solid footstool. My name is Emily Small and I founded the Goongra Wombat Orphanage with my mother, Sharon. We aim to rescue, care and rehabilitate the bare-nosed wombat in Victoria. Close to 20 years ago, my mother and I were handed a little orphan wombat that was pulled out of his mother's dead pouch. She was hit by a car just outside of our house and that was the start of Green Girl Wombat Orphanage.
3: Emily and her mum receive six to eight wombat joeys a year, usually orphans whose mothers have been killed by cars, which, unfortunately, is a recurring problem. They have quite
4: poor eyesight. People think they're, like, you know, not intelligent or they're dumb and they just stand in the middle of the road, but one of their behaviours is they'll just stop and put a foot up and listen because they can't see something that they can hear. They have an incredible hearing and sense of smell. So they're just stopping and listening and can't see the car till it's like a metre in front of them.
3: It's fair to say that looking after wombats has pretty much taken over Emily's life.
4: I work full time and the wombat work that I do is not a career, it's just my life, (laughs) my second life when I have time. It's not my work, it's not like what I do on the side. Like it just is me. I'm very good at doing things one-handed now because of holding them. <laughs> when they're quite little, they literally just go under my shirt, and I've definitely done my uni exams with a wombat down my top. He <laughs> was too little to leave, and the examiner was looking at me like when I needed to go to the toilet. And she's like, oh yes, of course, of course, because she thought I was pregnant. Because I had to kind of shape it, ish. Every time he like coughed or made a noise, I'd have to like shuffle my papers, or he'd sneeze and I'd have to cough, hide it. It was very embarrassing. But what do you do? It's the life. They've got more personality than any dog or cat I've ever met. They're incredibly intelligent and stubborn. That's probably why I like them. We're very similar. Once they've been somewhere, like under a certain part of the fence, you can remove every single part of that fence and they will still continue to go through that bit of fence. You can plug it up, you can concrete it, they will still try and get through it. That's where they go.
3: Wombats, as well as being adorable, enjoyed 15 minutes of fame when the internet discovered a curious and delightful fact about them. They poo cubes. Tiny, perfectly formed, cube-shaped poo. The reason behind
4: the wombats' cube-shaped poo is actually the design of their intestines. Because they do like to poo on top of things, so like a mushroom or a log or my shoes, it doesn't roll off, but... You know, probably going to trust the science on this one.
3: (laughs) Uh. For years, Emily and her mum were kept busy, keeping the joeys safe and releasing them when they were ready. But their work was about to get a lot more urgent. And more dangerous. From September 2019 to February 2020, all through the fierce Australian summer, bushfires ripped through many parts of the country, destroying homes, killing hundreds of people... And incalculable numbers of animals. The sky was red for months on end, and the choking smoke kept people locked in their homes.
4: The bushfires that's now named the Black Summer was devastating, and the losses that our whole forest, including animal and plant life, has suffered is, I don't think, will ever be measured we decided to evacuate and we could only take two older wombats with us to the safe town that ended up being under threat twice when we returned to our house after the fires had been through it was 11 days later we had found out our house had survived but we weren't sure which so i released wombats they're free but they would normally come home most nights we didn't know what state they were in if they had burnt paws or if they were injured in any kind of way. So we had to get home. We went home and found everyone. Everyone returned, which was, uh, that yes, I still haven't found words to describe that. The relief, um, just amazing. They're, they're like all my children. <laughs> uh Then we were thrust into COVID and the pandemic. I had just, Received an orphan wombat, Landon, and then his buddy came along, Bronson. So Bronson, would he could not cope with like being held or, or comforted unless he was in a pouch, so like an artificial pouch. And Landon would just snuggle into my neck.
3: Emily's wombat orphanage is a 280-mile trek away from her home in Melbourne, a journey she usually makes every week. In fact, we spoke to her from her car as she stopped on the way home to talk to us with two of her wombats in the back.
4: So I'm actually just on my way back to Melbourne for work and I have with me Conrad and Eva May and they're being very, very good kids sleeping.
3: As the coronavirus pandemic brought the world to a standstill, it became impossible for her to keep doing this journey back and forth. But that wasn't going to stop her. The new arrivals, babies Landon and Bronson, took up residence in Emily's one-bedroom Melbourne apartment. Kind of like roommates, but much cuter and much messier.
4: That was nice. It was just the three of us for a very long time hanging out in the apartment. They were very helpful with work. Not really. Due to the pandemic, I was obviously... I didn't see anyone. I didn't have my usual maybe friends over or I'd see my mum more often. I ended up calling them like COVID bats because they were very, very worried and scared. Not scared, but like when they met someone else, they were just like, no, where's mum immediately. And that that's not a thing I would see often because they would just be more more sociable. <laughs> so that was definitely something that I was like, wow, that, that actually is it like a behaviour difference difference of having wombats in my apartment versus the orphanage is that it's easier. There's lights, but there's instant hot water, there's washing machine whenever I want it, a dryer. I can temperature control it, it's amazing. So there's pretty much nothing at like thigh, knee level that they can consume, eat or ruin. And if it is there, I am prepared for it to be taken hostage by a wombat the saying of a dog ate my homework, like a wombat literally ate my homework my, my entire life, my entire school life. They still eat my work. Everything of mine is just chewed from like the hip down. I am still worried slash can't believe that I haven't been kicked out of my apartment. Uh, surely my landlord knows. I don't have, I'm allowed to have pets, but they're not pets, so maybe we're all right loss and devastation and the whole trauma of the bushfires. um, I have probably yet to properly process and um, debrief with myself. I haven't really been allowed the time and space and environment. So that will be interesting when that decides to come out. (laughs) I don't feel different about my passion and the reason I'm here in regards to wombats. I am grateful and I know that I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. So it's a little bit different. (laughs) They are my reason.
3: You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. Today's stories were produced by Eliza Lomas, Caitlin Hobbs and me, Emily Knight. If you need a regular dose of animals, nature and science to rescue you from what ails you, then you know what I'm going to recommend. Sign up to the BBC Earth newsletter at bbcearth.com newsletter. And join us next week when we'll be telling stories of people power. About times that one human or several humans have really managed to change a part of the natural world. For better or for worse. Join us then.